I overlooked an orchid while searching for a rope. The orchid that I overlooked was you. The rose that I was searching for has proved to be untrue. The orchid now I find, my dear, was you. Hello and welcome to episode 1947 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs and I am joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? Doing great. Enjoying dead week between Mm. Christmas and New Year's, although it hasn't been that dead in baseball, fortunately, for our purposes. (sighs) Look, I don't like to speculate about the family relationship of people I don't know. I mean, or I don't like to do it publicly. But I <laughs> if I were a baseball executive, you know, I wouldn't I wouldn't invite the question quite as often as baseball executives seem to. It's like, you know, you're you, if you have kids, they're off from school this week generally. If you don't, you might have some hobbies, you know? What <laughs> Why? Because here's the thing. (laughs) If you're the Atlanta Braves and you have convinced Sean Murphy to sign what is arguably a a slightly below market extension, you've done the hard work of convincing him to do that and to contribute as many of his colleagues and forever teammates have 1% of his annual salary to the Atlanta Braves Foundation, which... I don't know. It's a curiosity of these that I'm always fascinated by. But you've done the hard work, right? You've persuaded Sean Murphy that he has enough downside scenarios in his career that he should take $73 over six years despite being one of the better catchers in baseball. And we'll talk about the the merits and, and demerits of that. But you've done the hard work. So, like, chill, you know, just like that feels like 2023 Anthopolis's problem to announce. And you're the brave. So you always announce your own news. Just keep yes. it. Just keep it a little, a little secret. And you know what? If if someone finds out if one of the intrepid beats on on Atlanta's beat discover that Sean Murphy is going to be in the fold for the next six years with, you know, an option like, OK, <laughs> Let them have one, you know? It's fine. It's it's. They really... want to be first. They want to get the scoop. <laughs> but it's true. He's not going anywhere for several years, as right. it turns out. That's, so... the whole, that's the whole thing of it, you know, yeah. is that he's yeah. not going anywhere. Yeah. And, and as for other signings and transactions, uh, we got time. Opening day is not next week. Yeah. We, could, we could wait <laughs> until after the holidays. I guess Carlos Correa's deal will perhaps wait oh, until 2023 we will, we will see but i guess that is the most notable news or non-news which as we record on wednesday there has as of yet been no official signing and no official non-signing correa miss did not come early as it turns out in fact it has not come late as right. of yet either so what happened was the mets who agreed to terms with Carlos Correa shortly after the Giants uh, had decided that they were not going to abide by the terms they had previously agreed to because of concerns that showed up in the physical, reportedly due to his ankle or, or lower leg that he hurt in 2014 and had surgery on, although it seemingly hasn't hampered him since. But the Mets 
had their physical, I guess, Thursday into Friday, and it turns out that they have very similar concerns, perhaps identical concerns. And so that deal has not been consummated yet either. That is still pending physical or, I guess, pending negotiations that have followed the physical. So it sounds like there's still a good chance that it could get done in some form. I think the most recent report came from John Heyman, right, who said that there was optimism that they would work something out. But Heyman's New York Post colleague, Mike Puma, also included a quote from an anonymous source saying that it is 55% likely to work out, which uh, I guess you could say there is optimism if there's any amount of optimism. If there's still a chance, you could say there is optimism. But that one source is uh, just slightly more than a coin flip that, that this will actually happen. So it sounds like if it does happen, either there will be some sort of restructuring of the contract, which it sounds like Cray and Boris would rather avoid, fewer years, fewer dollars, whatever it is, Or there could be some sort of provision, as we've seen in some past contracts, that if he were to hurt himself and the injury was related to this apparent weakness that the Mets and Giants have both flagged, then there would be some kind of clause where they could, I don't know, get out of the contract or reduce the contract or whatever it is. So we will see whether this happens or whether Carlos Correa will be back on the market yet again. <laughs> so we can continue to talk about Carlos Correa for a while. This is the free agent signing or non-signing that keeps giving. Maybe Scott Boris needs to familiarize himself with like the particulars of the epiphany because then he can like, you know, extend it to January 6th and oh no, what a weird day. Um <laughs> I don't have any jokes, just discomfort. So I'm very curious to see how the Mets think about the ultimate like probability likelihood of Correa and Boris prevailing in a grievance process. And I don't want to represent myself as being overly familiar with that process. I know that through various people's reporting that part of why the league encourages teams to to not really say anything about a deal being done until it is in fact done and the contract is signed is because of the role that speaking publicly about them pre-Korea miss, you know, when you try <laughs> yeah. to open your present on Korea miss <laughs> Eve. Yes. I don't totally understand that. That has been reported in many places. I assume there's something to it, but I I don't totally follow why, for instance, Steve Cohen coming out and saying, yeah, we are really excited to have Carlos Correa and he was the last thing we needed, etc. Like, that wouldn't hurt his value or anything. Like, if he were to, to go back onto the market, the fact that Steve Cohen was so excited to have signed Carlos Correa provisionally, it, it doesn't sound like that would have like hurt his ability to get a job somewhere else. So I, I don't totally get that, but that has been reported in multiple places. So unless that's just some sort of Boris smokescreen, perhaps there's something to it. Right. Yeah. It seems like the the physical being sufficiently concerning is yeah. what would ding right. his value and his potential ability to sign elsewhere. But I suspect that if it comes to that, we will have plenty of time to consult relevant experts and get mm-hmm. a, a better understanding of it. But yeah, it's just like this thing in limbo. Mm-hmm. I wonder if, if they started looking at real estate in Manhattan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I also just, it seems like, I don't know, man, like, I'm not a 
doctor. So I never quite know what to say about these things because it feels like, to your point, like it hasn't been an issue for him. He has had other issues that are health related mm-hmm. since this injury and, and the surgery that it necessitated. This has not caused a problem for him. Now, maybe they look at it as like a ticking time bomb, you know, that could mm-hmm. be a problem at any point. But like when you're signing a guy to a 20,000 year long contract, like aren't you just assuming injury risk anyway? I don't know. It's just a, I don't know. I find it very strange. I also have a cat trying to step on my keyboard. <laughs> Baby, that's not helpful right now. You know, I'm trying to record a podcast. Dylan, leave it in. This is how the sausage gets made. She's like, I don't know what day it is. You're recording on a Wednesday? Is it Wednesday? How does one account for the calendar between Christmas and New Year's? Anyway, it's all very strange. And it feels like even if they get it done, it does cast something of a pall on, on the early going, but also mm-hmm. everyone's going to forget that if he ends up a Met and then hits a home run. So, you know, right. like, yeah. I don't know what to make of it, Ben. If he does sign with Mets or somewhere, then maybe we will get actual details about what the condition is. Right. As you said, it's it's hard to figure this is a, a body part that he hurt eight years ago right. that was fixed that at the time it was said that this would not be a long-term issue and it has not kept him off the field. Other right. things have sometimes, but not this. And he's had a great career. So it is hard to figure how this could be kind of this looming threat when it hasn't manifested itself in the majors at all. I asked one doctor for just how that kind of thing could happen. Someone who has not obviously examined Correa and does not have any specific knowledge about Correa. His name is Christopher Geary. He's an orthopedic surgeon in sports medicine. And I just asked, like, what kind of thing could present some sort of future risk but not have manifested yet? And he said the only thing he could think of is some sort of early arthritis or Mm. arthritic condition maybe, which might start to impact him more eventually but hasn't yet. Again, he's not saying that that is what Correa has has had or does right. have. He doesn't know. He hasn't seen anything. He's just saying, imagining what kind of thing could be a long-term threat or risk or perceived to be one without having actually affected the player thus far. So I don't know what it could be, but I guess it is certainly some degree of vindication for the Giants, yeah. right? Because, I mean... As we were doing our episodes last week, like we were, I think, kind of careful to caveat, but also sort of tongue in cheek, like this is still pending physical, right? Like this might not happen either. Yeah. But we noted that, well, if he does hurt his ankle or his leg at some point, well, then maybe everyone will say, oh, I guess the Giants were right or they were onto something or they were wise to back out of this. And I guess this is even more immediate vindication in the sense that If the critique of the Giants was that they were overly cautious and and that they were too hesitant to sign the superstar, whereas the Mets were just like, let's go for it and who cares about the future and what might happen? Well, clearly the Mets have some concerns too. So it's hard to assess like whether either of them has acted the most rationally or rationally at all. Again, like we don't know anything about the underlying condition here, but at least you can say now that the Giants aren't the outlier and that even the team that is very motivated to 
throw money around and sign superstars is also like, oh, hold on. We're seeing something here, too. Let's right. pump the brakes. So I don't know if that has uh, led to an easier week for Farhan Tidy and, yeah. and Giants management and ownership. I would think so, probably, just that they aren't singled out. And obviously, I'm sure Giants fans are still quite disappointed that they didn't get a superstar and they didn't right. get Judge and they didn't get Correa. But at least there are reasons for that now, right? Like Judge just wanted to stay with the Yankees ultimately. And Correa, well, maybe he has some sort of issues too. And also maybe we're in sort of a similar situation here where the Mets said, okay, we're not going to agree to those original terms, but let's work something out, which is maybe what the Giants said too, essentially, except that Scott Boris had a plan B, had a backup plan of the Mets that he could immediately pivot to and say, okay, we don't have to wait and try to figure this out now because we have this other team that's hot for Carlos. Whereas now, maybe there are still teams out there that have inquired and who knows, maybe the Twins would still be interested and supposedly there are other teams that have kind of, you know, asked around what's going on here. But because this is now the second time and there maybe isn't a, a Steve Cohen out there waiting in the wings, then Boris actually has to wait and talk and see how this plays out. So it's hard to say whether the failure to communicate was a problem on the Giants' part before that deal fell apart or whether it was just that Boris had a viable option that he could say, okay, we don't need to wait and talk. We can just immediately go back to this other team that we had lined up. Right. And I guess there's still a possibility where the Giants were perhaps a little overly conservative and the Mets are like, look, this is a cherry on top for us. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, we are willing to splash this money around. We think Carlos Correa is a great player. He allows us to do a bunch of different stuff. This is us having like, let's go for it mentality. But also- The Mets don't need him as much as the Giants needed him. Exactly. Like, we don't need him. So if we, you know, they are in an advantageous position negotiating wise to some extent because they you know if they walk away they'll just you know play a perfectly good player at third base they still have francisco lindor (laughs) and they you know they can bank that money to spend next offseason when they try to woo otani or whatever you know so they have some ability here to be like "Eh," you know like Mm -hmm. we'll renegotiate or not I think the ability to walk away is always kind of powerful. Now you're right that like Boris was sort of going to be compromised anyhow because it's like when it's a third team, the only the only team we know has seen Carlos Correa's medicals recently and was like a okay is the Twins. <laughs> yeah, although I don't think they did. Uh, they didn't do a full physical this offseason, no, right? They they did correct. one last offseason. They did or one last March. Off-season. Yeah, right. And presumably this injury was known to them then you know obviously a shorter term deal one that they obviously had an expectation he would opt out of so like the risk calculus is different there but like they weren't like oh my god his legs just gonna fall off tomorrow it's amazing you know yeah so right it was yeah. short of that at least yeah some, some <laughs> people pointed out that there was an incident on september 20th where korea he slid into second base and he came up kind of hobbling And it was like a a short-term scare. And he said, he just hit my plate. He still Mm. got a plate in there. I had surgery and he hit it, just kind of felt numb, vibrating. So I was just waiting for it to calm down. It was a little scary, but when I moved, I knew it was good. So that might have been nothing at all. Or I suppose it's possible that something was jostled in there so such that it would show up as a concern now, but wouldn't have in March. Who knows? So... 
yeah, it's really tough to say, but we will uh, wait and see. Eventually, he'll sign somewhere, you know? Yeah. Like, <laughs> maybe He's not going to retire. No, every team can take a crack at Carlos Correa between now and opening day. He could just uh, go from team to team, pending physical, fail the physical, go somewhere else, uh, just be a journeyman before the season starts, and we can just uh, play out this whole drama and, and soap opera through the slow rest of the winter and have something to talk about. It's working out great. We got the <laughs> extreme excitement of the giant signing and then the extreme excitement and drama of the Mets signing him and now more drama. This is just a story that will not die, but eventually it will sign somewhere officially. <laughs> so we'll continue to bring you updates. What do you think the odds are that the Giants are back in conversation somewhere? <laughs> you know that what is, I mean? Like, yeah, do you think that they might have said, look... <laughs> Uh, we're just gonna what if we run it back you know you're gonna have to take less money and fewer years anyway because Mm -hmm. this is now two teams that have flagged this what if we like think about the think about the self-aware jokes you could tell at the signing press conference Ben. you could make (laughs) a funny out of it you could be like look we we were nervous we've we've re-engaged you know like a like a lot of young people Carlos entertained life in New York for a while and then decided to go west, you know, like like (laughs) Like some of us do. Yeah, some of us do that, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, I didn't, I stayed longer and made a lot less money, but (laughs) otherwise it's an identical scenario, though I didn't have to take a physical when I started working for Goldman. I did have to take a drug test, but other than that. Yeah. Well, he has to do that too. (laughs) Different drugs maybe. Eh, We'll see. (laughs) Anyway, so there have been some other transactions that have actually gone through. So I guess we should touch on those briefly. The most notable being, obviously, that effectively wild legend Rich Hill has signed with the Pittsburgh Pirates. So get your Twitter hype video ready. This is absolutely worthy of a hype video. Yes. Rich Hill, 43 years young in March. He (laughs) will sign with the Pirates on a one-year, $8 million deal. And this is great for a few reasons. First, it it makes it official that Rich Hill will be back. We knew he was interested in pitching, although he had suggested that maybe he would take the first half off and come back in the second half. So this means we get a full season of Rich Hill. Yeah. So that's good. And he adds yet another team to his record. So this will be his 12th team once he pitches for the Pirates. And that leaves him just two away from Edwin Jackson's record of 14. And that's if you exclude the two other teams that Rich Hill has pitched for in the minors. Right. He pitched for the Nationals and Cardinals organizations without pitching for the big clubs. But he will get up to 12. And you have to figure that... The Pirates will probably not be his only team of 2023, yeah. right? Assuming he stays healthy yeah, and effective. Yeah, if he's any good at all, you, yeah. you have to imagine he's out of there come the deadline. Exactly. So he gets paid, he gets his job, he gets a rotation spot, and then if he holds up okay, then he can probably have his choice of destinations and contenders, and someone else will get the gift of Rich Hill. So multiple cities, multiple fan bases may get to enjoy the legend in what could be his last season, although I certainly don't want to rule out future seasons. Yeah. If I were Rich Hill and I were the oldest player in baseball and I were that close to the record, I would try to set it. Maybe he is. Maybe that's why he signed with the Pirates. The Rich Hill farewell tour should just be he gets to play a game for every team. 30 starts, 30 teams. Works out perfectly. There is a fun article by Chris Cotillo not long ago where he quizzed Red Sox people about which teams Rich Hill had played for, and no one could name all of them. Everyone missed like the Angels and the Orioles and the Yankees. The more, the merrier. So... Love it. 
This yeah. is uh, Rich Hilmus has come late. <laughs> I, I was surprised that he, you know, was entertaining the idea that uh, he would only pitch the first half because, you know, Ben, famously, if you want to climb a mountain, you got to go up and come down. And so, yes. and my understanding is that mountains operate the same way. Yeah. Oh my right. God, there's a signing while we were recording, Ben. Oh my gosh, what was it? Corey Kluber is going to be a Boston Red Sox. Huh. Well, Man, I don't right. get Boston's offseason <laughs> at all. That team is doing weird stuff. It is doing weird stuff. Yeah. <sighs> well, I don't have a whole lot to say about that. Yeah, Corey Kluber. They needed some pitching. He's yeah, pitching. He's pitching. <laughs> all right. All right. One year deal. One year deal. Not nearly as exciting as Rich Hill. Sorry no. that you're overshadowed there, Corey Kluber. But Jarrett Seidler of Baseball Perspectives pointed out on Twitter that since Sam and I started playing the What Should Rich Hill's Contract Be game in mm. September 2015 when he miraculously rehabilitated himself, he has signed eight years of contracts for $72.5 million. Man, plus for him. many millions more in incentives. So I think that's it's even more than we were estimating at the time or, or any subsequent time, I think, if you put it together. I don't know. Sam may have uh, been that exuberant and, and optimistic about him at some point. I think he may have projected a, or predicted or said he would have signed him to three years and 60-something at, at some point. Anyway, he's made bank after not making nearly as much bank in the first half of his career. So I, I hope it continues. Effectively, well, guest and legend long may he pitched and and i don't know if you can say is bob nutting still nutting if he signs dick mountain i guess he's still nutting oh, but no i didn't <laughs> even think of the combination of jokes oh boy we also got another pitcher signing nathan navaldi mm-hmm. who will be 33 in february he signed with the rangers for yep. two years and 34 million plus the rare vesting player option, mm. an innings-based vesting player option. So the Rangers, their rotation, it's its like the all-volatility team. It could be really good. Yeah. It could be completely unavailable. Just looking at the Fangraph starting pitcher death charts, the Rangers are number two right now, although barely ahead of the Mets, who, as I've mentioned, I think Kodai Senga is not yet on the depth charts. Correct. So. At worst, you could say that the Rangers are probably the third best projected rotation and just huge error bars around all of these guys, basically, because you've got Martin Perez, you've got John Gray, you've got, of course, Jacob deGrom, you've got Evaldi, you've got Andrew Heaney, and then you've got Jaco DeRisi and I guess Dane Dunning backing everyone up. So that is a, a very solid top five or top six, but also a lot of guys who are either good or injured, basically. So if they get the season where DeGrom is healthy and Heaney and Evaldi and Gray are healthy and Perez is healthy and effective, like that could be a dominant rotation. Not a lot of on base in the lineup, but some good gloves in the outfield. You try to win with pitching and defense. If you think you have some knack for keeping pitchers healthy, then you get these undervalued arms. Their top five or six or seven make their regular turns in the rotation and you win. Or it could be just they end up needing 10 starters because uh, those guys are never healthy. So who knows? But I guess if you're trying to unseat the Astros in that division or at least go for a wild card, then uh, you want to roll the dice a little bit. You want to go for the upside and the ceiling and bank on getting good health out of those guys. So it's an intriguing bunch, to be sure. 
it just makes me feel really sad about the Mariners offseason, candidly. Yeah. yeah, I think that even when they signed DeGrom, they had sort of put themselves in, in potential wild card territory. But we when you look at that roster, you're like, there's still there's still stuff here that doesn't quite work, right? There's all of this potential injury risk in the rotation. Pieces of the outfield don't really hang together that well. That you don't have like, you know, reliably good contributors out there. But they've invested in guys who they think are going to be good for them in the long term, right? And you can see that particularly on the middle infield. Mm -hmm. And then they've been like, let's have some potential for positive variance. And I think that that's a good strategy, right? Like they they are still going to need to do work to, you know, get this team in a shape where it can really challenge the Astros. But this team is definitely a problem for the Mariners and the Angels. Yeah, the Angels had been rumored to be interested in Ivaldi as well. So they get him instead of the Angels getting him. Right. And so I think that, you know, when you look around the American League, there aren't as many teams that are like, you know, like the... The Astros are going to be really good in all likelihood next year. Like the Yankees will be good. The Blue Jays will be good. The Rays will do Rays stuff. The Orioles will kind of be pesky. But like, I think that there is room and then you have whatever the hell happens in the central, but like there is definitely room for a team that experiences sort of positive variance to be in a spot where it's like, oh, we've snagged a wild card and we can kind of go see what run we're on. And then you look, you look at the Rangers and you're like, and in the service of that, we have literally Jacob deGrom, <laughs> yeah. you know, and maybe deGrom isn't, I think we talked about this at the time of the signing, like maybe he isn't able to double up in a short series because he, you know, you have to be sort of ginger with him. You have to, you have to treat him gingerly. Like ginger is both a <laughs> way of describing hair color and then also like a, you know, plant. But what I mean yes. is like a, a tenderness. You have to bring a tenderness to bear with your treatment of DeGrom potentially. But, you know, a couple starts out of DeGrom, even if you're not able to have him go again on short rest is like, I think pretty good. Like that's the thing that you enjoy uh, mm -hmm. in the playoffs if I were like just, you know, speculating. So I like it. I like their off season a lot. Yeah, they've just, it's all pitchers exclusively that they have added, at least on major league deals. It's yeah. just all pitchers. <laughs> so. Yeah. And, you know, like they could have continued that strategy further. Like I think that they could have entertained variance plays in the outfield. Like maybe Texas could have approached one Joey Gallo and said, hey, how about it? You know, mm, yeah. but they didn't do that. And that's fine. <laughs> like they were like, our thing here is is pitching. You know, we're going to do the pitching thing and then like add, I guess, Joe McCarthy, who can kind of pretend to play outfield. Uh, mm -hmm. you know? yeah. So it's like, it's a, it's a thing. He, he yep. signed a minor league contract. Yes. Have I been thinking about minor league guys? Who, who could say? <laughs> like, is that on deck for this week? I don't know. <laughs> do you know? I don't know. Do you, uh, my... Anyway. <laughs> So Kluber goes to Boston, Valdi yeah. leaves Boston, yeah. and the only other moves we should mention, I suppose, well, we didn't get to talk about this last week. I mentioned it on the outro, but I love the Dalton Varsho trade. It's just my favorite trade of this offseason or, <laughs> or any other recently. Yeah. It's just so much fun. The Diamondbacks and the Blue Jays connecting on this trade where Dalton Varsho goes to Toronto and Gabriel Moreno and Lourdes Gurriel Jr. go to Arizona. Yeah. Just such a fun trade. Yeah. Because 
these two teams matched up perfectly. Like the Blue Jays needed an outfielder, specifically a left-handed hitting outfielder, and they had too many catchers. Yeah. Whereas the Diamondbacks could have used a catcher and also had too many outfielders. Yeah. So they just matched up their respective strengths and needs. And you get Dalton Varsho going to Toronto, who's just perfect for them because uh, he can give their lineup some balance and he can play outfield and he can also be like a third string catcher. Yeah. And then the Diamondbacks get Moreno, who is, I guess, no longer prospect eligible, Correct. but was one of the best prospects in baseball and is still one of the, the best young and most uh, promising young players and catchers in yep. baseball. And so he can be the Diamondbacks catcher of the future. And Varsho, who's one of the most fascinating players, period, yeah. in baseball, the fact that he not only plays catcher and outfield, but is one of the best outfielders in baseball, which is just wild. Yeah. So the Blue Jays reconstructed outfield now without Guriel and without Teoscar Hernandez and with George Springer moving over to a corner. Like, that is quite a defensive unit there. Yeah. If everyone is, is healthy and effective— you got Varsho, who led all outfielders in outs above average in yeah. 2022. Then you've got Kevin Kiermeyer if he comes back fully effective. And then you have Springer, who's been a center fielder, shifting over to a corner. There will not be a ball that drops in yeah. that outfield. Like, that is really impressive. So. I just I love that satisfying feeling of like teams just their their roster excesses and shortages just matching up perfectly. Yeah. And it just it made sense. Like people had pointed to these two teams as potential trade partners and you can't always predict those things, but in this case it was like, Yep, that makes perfect sense and it happened. Yeah, I, I think like if we wanna pick a knit, you can say like, okay, does some of Varsho's value get sapped a little bit by putting him in left field as opposed to having him patrol center, but then you know, you have a 32, almost 33-year-old Kiermeyer, and so the odds that he only plays left field seem low because Kiermeyer right. might get dinged up, and this allows you to preserve Springer's health in right field if Kiermeyer does go down or isn't, you know, gets to a point where he's truly not playable at the plate. It's like, well, that's fine. We have a perfectly good Dalton Varsho. We don't have to fret about, you know, the rigors of center for George Springer. He can certainly stand up to them but you know that part of them wanting to move him to a corner was to like keep him healthy and whatnot so mm -hmm. i i think it's it's great it's great fun i don't imagine how many games next year do you imagine dalton varsha will catch yeah see that's the only downside is that it's been so much fun to have him as right. the dual catcher outfielder and i know he's moved more toward outfield as it is but yeah on this team with Kirk and Jansen, there's no particular reason for him to catch regularly unless right. uh, someone gets hurt. So if you like the weird positional <laughs> dual catcher outfielder, like I don't play fantasy baseball anymore, but I imagine Dalton Varsho being catcher eligible has been a lot of fun. And that probably won't completely come to an end, but yeah, that's, that's not going to happen often. We got a, a question from Patreon supporter Milner who wrote in to say, does having Dalton Varsho as a third catcher allow some flexibility for the Blue Jays that the other teams don't have? It seems like you don't need to be afraid to pull your starting catcher for a pinch mm. hitter or runner yeah. or even defensive replacement as long as Varsho is in the game. I know teams are reluctant to pull starting catchers in case the sub gets injured, but with a credible replacement in the outfield, you don't need to worry about this. That is true. I think it's, you know, probably a little extra value, but... 
that's more of a, a break glass in case of emergency. I mean, it's the best emergency catcher in baseball. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Can you count the third stringer as emergency or does that need to be beyond third string? I don't know. But they've had a lot of catching depth and they still have a lot of catching yep. depth. So the fact that their outfielder can easily slide over there, that's a, a nice little perk. Yeah, for sure. He played 31 games at catcher or he caught in 31 games. I don't know if all of those were starts, but mm-hmm. he caught in 31 games for the D-backs last year. So yeah. And I got to say, like as a catcher of the future, you know, you feel better about Moreno than you do about, I don't know, what do they have? Cooper Hummel, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. now they don't have to, you know, let, Cooper Hummel gets to be Seattle's problem. He gets yeah. to be Seattle. You know, that's the thing that they get to deal with. But Varsho started only 18 games at catcher 18. this past year, 17 complete games there. Got All it. right. Thank and you. then lastly, speaking of catchers, you led with this, but Sean Murphy. Yeah. 28 year old Braves catcher and now will be Braves catcher through, I don't know, at least uh, 34 or so. Because he signed a six-year, $73 million extension with a $15 million club option for 2029. So he was a first-year arbitration-eligible player heading into next year. So this buys out his remaining three ARB years and up to four free agent years. Right. And boy, they don't take long. They work quickly over yeah. there. <laughs> he was just traded to Atlanta this month and immediately he joins the pod people over there and wants to be a, an Atlanta Brave forever. So now it's Murphy, Austin Riley, Matt Olson, Ronald Lacuna Jr., Ozzy Alves, Spencer Strider, Michael Harris. All players who've been extended and who are under Atlanta's control through 2027 with Acuna and Albies, I think another year or two beyond that. So, And then there are the pitchers, too. I mean, almost everyone in that lineup, like, what has taken Von Grissom so long? What's the (laughs) holdup here? (laughs) Come on. <laughs> is it like awkward in the clubhouse if you're like the one guy on the team who has not signed the long term extension? But ask it, Max Fried, I guess. Yeah, there seems to be like a peer pressure element here, or not. I don't know, maybe not peer pressure, but we could put that in a more positive way. Like I, I just I want to be part of this group. Uh, it's not even like Murphy knows this group of players or has like been in that clubhouse or something or or has won on this team just like being added to the roster is apparently sufficient to want to stay with this team forever so they really must have like i'd love to read just like a behind the scenes what is atlanta's pitch to these guys like do they have some amazing presentation that they keep deploying is it purely word of mouth and then everyone's like one of us one of us one of us stay with the Braves forever but it's really working out in their favor I mean this one I guess with this one they have just slightly exceeded the competitive bounce tax threshold I think maybe for the first time because this deal is uh, it's backloaded to some extent, so he's not making yeah. that much in 2023, but the average annual value goes up. So right. this is, uh, I guess, a payroll high for them, and I think they've indicated some willingness to perhaps go past that limit. So, so that's good. I guess that they should do that coming off of a World Series and another division title and a bunch of division titles, but... Really, like as a Braves fan, you just you kind of know what you're going to get for yeah. the next several seasons. So settle in. Yeah, I mean, I, 
imagine that some of it is definitely a, hey, we like this group. We want to hang out together. We think that this is a good competitive team. You are able to have some amount of certainty about, you know, sort of what your floor is in a way that other players don't, right? Even when they're signing long-term extensions, they don't know what their team's going to look like in 10 years, right? Like who could know such a thing? And in this case, you are able to lock that in. I imagine that part of what they're doing here is strategically targeting guys not only for their production on the field, but for their potential willingness to sign contracts like this. It's not surprising to me that like a guy who just, you know, had to, play in Oakland is like, yeah, I'll take $73 million. That <laughs> yeah. sounds great. And, you know, for catchers, I think that the calculus is, I imagine, a little bit different. They are sort of akin to pitchers in that, like, you can understand a desire to lock in guaranteed earnings because it's such a grind on your body when you're catching, right? Like, it is, it just takes a huge physical toll. And, you know, John Murphy's like played a bunch of games at catcher. So I can understand, especially as a 28 year old, him being like, yeah, you know, I, I want to make sure that I'm making close to a hundred million dollars. And if it works out, then I'll stick around for, you know, another 15. And I get it. I do think that like, we want to continue to really be to really scrutinize deals like this, just in terms of what they do to the overall sort of spending environment, which feels silly to say in an off season like this, where it's like there's been, <laughs> yeah. you know, a record level of spending, but it does put these guys in a position where when they eventually hit free agency, they're hitting free agency later into their lives, their odds of earning, you know, big, big money are lower. But I also understand like, you know, this is $73 million that Sean Murphy just gets to count on now, you mm-hmm. know? So it's a tricky, those those ones are tricky because you don't want to deny these guys the agency, but we can to sign long-term extensions and say like, hey, I just want to be a, I want to be an insert, you know, team name here for the bulk of my career or the bulk of the prime of it. But I think it is worth thinking about sort of what it does to the broader labor environment, even in an offseason like this that has been really lucrative for free agents. So I don't know. It's mm-hmm. just a thing that we got to keep being like, nah. And also <laughs> spend some time with your family. How bad could they be? <laughs> you know, like yeah. probably fine. And mm-hmm. I'm sure that. Anthopolis did that, but also it's like this is supposed to be, you know, other leagues have a transaction freeze this week. Mm, mm-hmm. You yeah. know? And <laughs> and there are rules in the off season about when you can do waiver stuff because they know that these folks are all workaholics and will just waiver claim away the weekend. And it's like, stop it. Rest. <laughs> you know, you don't get to rest during the regular season. Rest. Just mm-hmm. rest. It's yeah. important, Ben. It's important to rest you know so i hear so i'm told i know you're bad at this too and i it's not like i have tremendous work-life balance so (laughs) i you know i get it but i also think again you've done you've done the hard part which is to persuade this young man to like sign this deal you've done that part you actually did the hard part as it you know pertains to sean murphy a couple weeks ago when you got the trade for him done you've already done the hard stuff okay your big projects completed you know so you don't have to do this other stuff right now you can just (laughs) 
You could just relax. So relax. Well, we say that as we're recording podcasts. Unfortunately, we, we wanted something to talk about, although we, we had enough to talk about yeah, without all the plan. transactions this week so that they didn't actually have to do this for our sake. But that happened. And also, I guess, uh, the Phillies signed Craig Kimbrell. Oh, yeah. <laughs> for, Phillies. for one year and 10 million. Which, yeah, they like, did do that. All I have to say is that I can't think of any way to enhance the chaos energy of the Phillies more than adding Craig Kimbrell to the mix, <laughs> who could be dominant, could be unpitchable. Who knows? So yeah. that'll be fun to find out which is which or <laughs> whether he's one at one part of the year and another at another part. Yep. All right. So what we had planned this week, so all of our episodes this week are, are themed episodes. As you teased, we will have the minor league free agent draft coming yeah. up later this week. But another exercise that we've done at the end of some years, not every year, but many years, is a, a stories we missed episode or two episodes where we talk about something that we didn't talk about about each team in that year because despite doing a lot of podcasts and talking about a lot of things we don't discuss everything no. and there are certain things that just aren't on our radar as national level baseball people and so it makes I us put... sound so fancy <laughs> yeah it's just we're above all these, uh, these minor not. stories we're no we're not at not. all but but we missed some interesting stories yeah. and so at the end of the year, I, I put the call out to people in the Facebook group and elsewhere and say, hey, what did we not talk about this year that was interesting about your team? And it could be a weird fun fact. It could be some nice or strange or heartwarming off the field story. It could be an individual player season that was interesting in some way. And we just uh, run them down and, and quickly list a story or two for, for each team. So I have all of them, and, and we can, I think, do the NL teams today, and then we'll do the AL teams later. So we can start with NL because the senior circuit has seniority, and we'll just go in alphabetical order here. And we were just talking about the Braves, so we can start with the Braves again. And this is one of my favorite ones. This was nominated by listener Matt, who noted that Atlanta carried Guillermo Heredia for the entire season to basically be, in Matt's words, a plastic pink sword-wielding cheerleader. Yeah. I just was not aware of the season that Guillermo Heredia had. He played 74 games and got only 86 plate appearances. Yeah. In which he did not do much. He had a no. 55 OPS plus. And as Matt said, those are forced to be on the roster Rule 5 draftee numbers, yep. not full-season 31-year-old veteran numbers. Yeah. But basically... The story with him, I mean, he, he hit pretty well in 2021, so maybe they expected him to hit better, but he did not. He still had and... a 79 WRC plus in 2021, okay. <laughs> to be clear. Like, All right. He did not hit pretty well. He hit better, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like, it, you know, it was it was better and, you know, better, I think, against left-handed pitching than right-handed pitching, yes. as I recall, but not like... Like, he had a 101 WRC plus against left-handed hitting in 2021. <laughs> yeah, so it's something. But it's something. Yeah, so he was basically around as an extra outfielder and, and was needed even less once Michael Harris came up. Right. And so, as the Braves' SB Nation blog Battery Power put it, 
With most of Heredia's on-field purposes reduced or taken away altogether, his primary job became keeping team chemistry, dugout energy, and clubhouse morale all as high as possible. And he ranked in the 99th percentile at it with his random pink swords, seemingly endless amounts of energy, constant chatter, and infectious smile. His teammates loved him, the fans loved him, and basically without any on-field contributions, Heredia became one of the most popular players in the organization. (laughs) It's just great. I'm always fascinated by players who manage to stick on the roster despite not playing, and yet they justify their playing time or their presence somehow. Yeah. And really, it is extraordinary playing this many games, just primarily as a defensive replacement, without getting many plate appearances. It's really like no one has done this in a while. Yeah. Just looking at, at Stathead and searching for like, you know, minimum 74 games, fewest plate appearances. Obviously, you have your like mid-70s A's pinch running specialists, Herb Washington and Don Hopkins at the top who got no plate appearances or barely any. But really, no one has had this kind of season since I think 2005 when Lenny Harris, pinch hitter extraordinaire, he played 78 games for the Marlins and had 83 plate appearances. That is the last time someone has played this many games and had so few plate appearances. And he was on the active roster almost the entire season. So there was a a five-game period where he was demoted to AAA. And then I, I think that was because they had to call up an extra catcher because Travis Darno maybe was day to day and had hurt his leg and uh, x-rays were negative, but they, they called up Chadwick Trump, one Trump. of my favorite baseball names. Yeah, and, uh, and also a pitcher because I think uh, Ian Anderson went down to AAA. Mm, so yeah, so right. that was just a brief little AAA interlude. But then Heredia was called up, I think, just like five days later because Ari Adrianza was placed on the injured list. And then Heredia was back for the rest of the way. And Robert Au and, and Lucas Apostolaris, they helped me look this up at, at Baseball Prospectus. I was interested in just like the least plate appearances, fewest plate appearances by someone who was on the active roster all season or most of the season. So former effectively wild guest Garrett Stubbs, he was the player who was on the active roster the entire season and had the fewest plate appearances, 121 as the Phillies backup catcher. But if you limit it to players with at least 142 days active, and Heredia had 167 of 172, then no one was really close to him in, in few plate appearances. It was like Charlie Culberson, Ryan O'Hearn, who is uh, just pushed off the Royals roster finally, Hanser Alberto, Kurt Suzuki, you know, like uh, utility types and yeah. backup catchers, and Guillermo Heredia, who was just sort of a mascot <laughs> for much of the season. And even going back to 2021, Robert looked at this data of like from MLB about who was actually on the roster on any given day. And if you go back to that, it was uh, Tyler Wade, someone else we've talked about a lot. He had the fewest plate appearances of anyone who was active that many days. But it's pretty rare to uh, stick around on a roster and play that little and play such an inessential role. So congrats to Guillermo Heredia for pulling it off. And 
just recently, he signed with the SSG Landers of the Korea Baseball Organization. So he's going to earn 900,000 up to a million with incentives and uh, presumably have a starting job. (laughs) So more money, more playing time for Guillermo Heredia in Korea. But wow, legendary season for him. How much of him being on the roster the whole year do you attribute to the Braves needing to figure out needing to figure out if it was a sword or a dildo. Because then, I got to tell you, the first time I saw Guillermo Heredia waving the pink sword or plastic sword around in the dugout, I was like, does Guillermo Heredia have a dildo? Is that part of the celebration here? And then I was like, it's a sword. And I was like, was the sword selected? Because it kind of looks like a, kind of looks like it might be a dildo. Dildo, yep. I'm saying it again. I said it quietly the first time so that parents could be like, oh, we have to put little things on the ears of the children. And now now you have to parent actively. I don't know. Sorry yeah. about that. It seems like a word that children would enjoy without necessarily knowing what it refers to. That's but what probably a fun word. why it's so dangerous. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because if you'll forgive a terrible sentence, great mouthfeel. <laughs> Okay. We're trying to make the show hornier so that we rank yes, better we in that, you know, perception of horniness amongst the yeah. other baseball brats. Right. Well, wait till we get to the Dodgers entry. Oh, no. I'm be so a good one. afraid. All right. So the Brewers entry. So some of these are, are like dugout celebrations. That's mm. something I'm not all that aware of yeah. as someone who's not following a, a particular team closely, unless it's a team that's playing in the playoffs and then it's like beaten to death how, you right. know, they do a specific hand motion or yeah. whatever. Or they put someone in a grocery cart or <laughs> they wear a cowboy hat or whatever it is. Yeah. Every team has some weird thing. Yeah. But this one was kind of entertaining that – Andrew McCutcheon of the Brewers brought an infinity gauntlet to the Brewers' dugout, yes. as in like Thanos's yeah, jeweled glove hand. or whatever. Yeah, yeah, right. And the reason for having an infinity gauntlet in the dugout. So this is a, a quote from McCutcheon. It's not supposed to be for a celebration. It just became that. It was used ultimately to celebrate home runs. But originally, he says, it was Lorenzo Kane and Keston Hira. Anytime Kane would be hitting, he'd line out or hit a ball hard. Everyone always has the same, hey, man, way to swing it. Hey, way to swing it. And as a Major League Baseball player, as a baseball player in general, no one wants to hear that after oh. you just lined out. <laughs> after you just did everything correct and someone's standing there and catches the ball, you don't want to hear way to swing it yeah so basically i was like you know what would be funny if we got some like huge hand or something every time we would line out we'd be like hey way to swing it we're all laughing about it but you need that in those moments because you're so mad especially if you're struggling that's why we have the hand i need that personally because i tend to sometimes get a little too frustrated when i line out so if i turn to my right and i see somebody with a thanos hand how can i not laugh at that (laughs) It's just like comic relief. It's like, oh, you just lined out. Don't be sad. Here's a big funny hand with jewels on on the knuckles. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Weird, Ben. I'm here to say. It is weird. Weird. Would that make you mad if if someone said, wait to swing it? I could see see it getting old after a while, right? I could see... It's starting to feel kind of patronizing, you know. I guess if, so. If your if your lack of success is protracted, I could feel it being like, just right. Don't talk to me. You know what I mean? Yeah. I can, I can understand that. 
Yeah, I guess so. Because you're probably only saying way to swing it right. to a Lorenzo Cain or Keston Hira, right. right? Who who you think needs the positive right. reinforcement because they're not hitting so well. So yeah. if it's a great hitter who lines out, you're probably not like don't feel so bad. Actually, yeah. look, Keston Hira, he hit pretty well actually in 2022. He, but he uh, <laughs> he had a nice little bounce back, Keston. He did. did. Yeah. yeah. So I see how I guess that could get frustrating after a while. It's just it's a frustrating situation. Period. Whether right. someone says way to swing it or not, on the one hand. You'd think on the Thanos Infinity Gauntlet hand, you'd think that it would be nice that people would recognize that you hit the ball hard. Yeah. And in this day and age where everyone goes by expected stats and stat cast stats and hard hit rate and all of that, like in terms of results on the field and winning yeah. games, it doesn't help you. But in terms of like how you're evaluated and how much money you might make, it actually does help to hit the ball hard. So yeah. there's there's a benefit to that that there didn't used to be necessarily. Right. So the Brewers had a Thanos hand, and they also at a at some point they had a a bell in the dugout that they would ring, and the bell would be rung. I guess not just for for good things that happened, but also like baseball moves. Like oh. this was a, a first base coach, Quentin Barry. He installed a bell in the Brewers dugout to recognize quote ball player moves. Okay. So when a player shows good instincts and awareness or makes a heads up play, but you can also ring it like after a home run. I think everything morphs and evolves into just making it a home run celebration. Like it might yeah. start as let's distract you from having lined out or yeah. let's uh, celebrate these little smart heads up instinctual plays. But ultimately it just becomes hit a home run, wave the infinity gauntlet and ring yeah. the bell. Yeah. All right. Okay. For the Cardinals. There were a few different nominations here. One was just the season of Lars Newtbar, which I think we have mentioned. This is yeah. supposed to be basically things that we never talked about on the podcast, but things that we didn't talk about much. Like Lars Newtbar had a, a great second half after struggling in the first half. One thing I was not aware of about that season was that he basically like went to a hitting clinic kind of over the all-star break. So mm. while everyone else was resting and relaxing and sometimes probably taking a break could be the thing that gets you back in the swing right. of things. But he got back in the swing of things by swinging a lot and was just like in the cage and working and seems to have solved something and came back a, a new man in the second half. And also related to Lars Newtbar and dugout celebrations, he had a pepper grinder in the dugout that, okay. that they would grind this is apparently something that Andrew Kisner started. It's a pepper grinder because you're grinding out every at bat. Mm. So that was why that was why they had the, the pepper grinder. Mm. I guess that makes some sense. Okay. Also, we were informed that was uh, Tyler pointed out Lars Newtbar. Brian Johnson listener pointed out the brief season of Kramer Robertson of the Cardinals, mm. who debuted at age 27. A lot of meet a major leaguers in, yeah. in this group here. So Kramer Robertson had two at-bats and one chance in the field. And in his one fielding opportunity, he committed an error. And then he was designated for assignment shortly after <laughs> thereafter. So he's not quite Moonlight Graham, but one official at-bat with an RBI, but has a, a negative 0.1 career war probably from that one error in his one chance. So hopefully he gets another cup of coffee at some point. Yeah. That would be nice. And also Zach Thompson, Cardinals uh, pitching prospect who came up, he became the first Cardinal to wear number 57 since the death of Daryl Kyle. And it was uh, appropriate because uh, Kyle, of course, famous for his big bending curveball. And Zach Thompson also throws a big bending curveball. So he got to inherit number 57. 
And then last Cardinals nomination, Jeff Albert, the hitting coach who will not be back. Apparently part of why he decided not to return is that Cardinals Twitter was mean to him. (laughs) Very mean to him. Yeah. So according to John Mazalak, Jeff Albert had frustration, quote, about the frequency with which he took blame for the team's offensive struggles and mentioned the tenor of social media comments as a factor in that frustration. So Jeff Albert does not officially have a Twitter account, but he must have a a burner in there somewhere. He must have, he's lurking, and I guess he did not like what he saw on Cardinals Twitter, and so the team was prepared to offer a new contract to him, but he decided not to return, and that was cited as a reason why. So, you know, people are are pretty mean to hitting coaches when the team doesn't hit. It's certainly not always their fault. But Cardinals Twitter was especially hard on Jeff Albert for one reason or another, rightly or wrongly, and uh, he took his leave, and and that was one reason why. I'm sure that wasn't the entire reason, but that was a reason. Wow. Yeah. Now the Cubs. So listener Aria pointed out that the Cubs went 21-10 and against NL East teams and did not have a losing record against any team in that division and actually swept the Phillies in the season series. So 28% of the Cubs wins came against NL East teams and that ended up impacting the playoff race. So that's interesting. I did not know that the Cubs owned the NL East. And also listener Nicholas nominated, and I know we may have mentioned it at some point, but he wrote for the Cubs, I nominate Christopher Morell, who was such a delight. Yeah, He always smiled and hugged opposing players every game. When he came to bat, he fist-bumped the home plate umpire, or tried to. Some umpires did not want to do that. And on top of a very successful season for a player who was not a top prospect being called up from double-A, he deserves some spotlight just for being the positive guy he is. He also had a, a very fun case where he pinch-hit homered in his first at-bat, and supposedly he called his shot an inning earlier to Wilson Contreras, who had hit a homer in his first at-bat years before. So this was one of the many instances of players predicting something, which happens so often that we don't discuss it that much anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so so that was a fun moment. What do you think? If you were a home plate umpire and a, a batter coming to the plate went for the fist bump, would you leave him hanging or what? Oh, man. It's so it's so fraught in both directions, right? It because is, yeah. if you do it in a game that counts, right? Like Nelson Cruz took a selfie with Joe West during the All-Star game. But like that's an all, you know, yeah. All-Star game. He had his phone in his pocket. We're not doing right. anything serious, right? But if you do it in a game that actually matters for something, you're going to be accused of bias toward the hitter. But right. if you don't, people are going to call you grumpy, you know, yeah. and they might they might accuse you of bias the other direction. So I yeah. think that the only answer you have in that moment is to like immediately start doing your your home plate chores, right? And Ooh, be like, well, yeah. I didn't see it. Sorry, I was cleaning <laughs> the plate, you know, like I'll get you next time, but I won't. So yeah. it's it's a fraught situation. Yeah, it's tough. He's being very friendly. Yeah. But he's, yeah, he's putting them in a tough position by being so friendly. Right. It's, I'm sure umpires appreciate it on some level because sure. like players often not so nice to them. Fans right. often not so nice to them. Right. But they have to maintain some, some remove, some sense of impartiality and objectivity. Yeah. And if you fist bumped him and then you immediately fist bumped like the catcher and and the pitcher if you fist bumped everyone right then maybe you'd be seen as unbiased but otherwise it's tough 
Right. And then if you're like, you know, you fist bump the hitter, you just hit a home run, and then you turn to like fist bump the catcher and also the pitcher, they're going to be like, what are you doing? That was terrible. Right. Like, I <laughs> I didn't want that to happen. We're not rewarding that. So uh, I think that someone should pull the young man aside and be like, look, it is a nice thought. You're you're clearly trying to be, you know, like a, a, a generous kind of co-worker sort of co-worker mm-hmm. right yeah. then like i get it but also it's like you gotta you gotta not not do that they they do have chit chat often you know like yeah. hitters will come to the plate and they'll go you know hey how's it going if they if it's someone who has been their home plate umpire before and i think that a whole book could be written about the relationship between catchers and umpires right because mm-hmm. they are at odds, but also, you know, have an appreciation unique to each other about what it feels like to get hit in the face with a freaking baseball, you know, mm-hmm. so they have they have care and consideration, but also antagonism. So like it's a there are a lot of ways in which that relationship is fraught, but you have to at least allow people to maintain the illusion of, you know, complete divorced objectivity, you know, you right. gotta allow for that. So. I wonder if he held grudges like I, mm. I don't know whether he fist bumped just before his first at bat of the game or whether he fist bumped every time he came to the plate. But if he got rung up on a, a borderline pitch and he disagreed with the call, would he still fist bump the next time up? Or like if the if the umpire, if the previous batter had had a call go against him, would he still fist bump? I wonder whether he withheld fist bumps just based on the situation or how the umpire was performing in that game or whether he just turned the other cheek and fist bumped regardless. Anyway, interesting. Yeah. All right. We're up to the Diamondbacks. Not a lot of on the field nominations here. I don't know whether there weren't interesting stories or whether we just talked about them. I think we talked about some interesting Diamondbacks stories. They are perhaps overrepresented based on my proximity to the big league club. Yeah, I guess that's true. But the, we talked about Dalton Varsho yeah. plenty, and and we talked about the uh, elite first base defense of Christian Walker we and his indeed. scoops and such. People nominated rookie Seth Beer hitting a walk-off home run on opening day, which happened to be National Beer Day. But I think we did talk about that or at least mentioned it in yeah. passing anyway. Now we've officially mentioned it. But listener Paul had a couple good suggestions here. So According to a 2022 study by a website called The Hustle, based on data from the Fan Cost Index, the Diamondbacks, and you can probably testify to this, had the most affordable games of of any team. So the study here, this was the cost for a family to go to a baseball game. Okay. So the total cost for four tickets, four hot dogs, two beers, two sodas, and parking in 2022. And according to this analysis, the average was 204.76 and the Diamondbacks cost was $126.34 for all of those things. So so the ticket price was I think also the cheapest at at 22.12 and then they break it down by the beer cost and the soda cost and the hot dog cost and the parking cost. Anyway, for all of that it added up to 126.34 for the Diamondbacks which was the lowest, even lower than the Marlins, the Pirates, the Rockies, the Rays, the Reds, the Tigers. Those were the teams that were next. A lot of teams that need to lower prices because they didn't put a particularly compelling product on the field, I guess, Rays aside. And the Diamondbacks were pretty decent too. So good bang for your buck. I don't know whether that mirrors your experience, but pretty affordable to go out and catch Diamondbacks games. Yeah, I find them to be pretty reasonable. I do have a 
I do have a D-backs gripe. Are you ready, okay. Ben? Sure. The concessions at Chase Field could be better. You know, mm-hmm. like some of the mm-hmm. some of the food, good, but like mm-hmm. it is shockingly poor from a beer selection perspective. So uh-huh. you know, Chase folks, get on that. I will pay a little more for better beer. Just according saying. to this, though, two dollar hot dogs, which was the cheapest of any ballpark. So that's something. If yeah. you're not there for for fine gourmet dining, oh yeah, you're just there for a hot dog. Then you can get a lot of hot dogs for your your money. And I will say, I think that the food concession options are much better. They are far superior to the drink options. You Got know, it. like I think mm-hmm. that there is a a meaningful gap in quality there, both at the low end and and the high end. So mm-hmm. I'm just I'm just saying. Part of this, though, Ben, is I've reached a point in my life, even as an IPA enjoyer, where I can say. We don't need so many hazies, you know? Like we could do we could do with a few a few fewer of them. Just uh-huh. like they're too many. And I know that some people feel that way about IPAs in general, but I'm from Seattle, so I don't feel that way. But I am here to say, you know, like some of them could just be normal IPAs. They don't all have to be hazy IPAs. This is So anyway, on to the next. Okay. I gave you the the least the least expensive teams, the most expensive, unsurprisingly, Red Sox. They were up at 324.37, and then Cubs, Yankees, Astros. Fifth was the Washington Nationals. So not only are you going to see a pretty terrible team, but it's going to cost you. You're going to pay for it, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I'll put that that full list online for anyone who wants to see where their team ranks. And and Paul also suggested there's a, a tweet last month from a Twitter account called D-Backs Facts and Stats at mm. D-Backs Facts. Wow. And it shows That's hard to say. I know. A Diamondbacks Rays comparison through mm. 25 seasons now because these are the the two 98 expansion oh, teams. Oh sure, yeah, yeah. So the Diamondbacks have played 3948 games, the Rays formerly the Devil Rays played 3946 games extremely close yeah much closer than i would thought so the diamondbacks cumulatively are 1914 and 2034 and the rays are 1912 2034 so they Mm. both have career 485 winning percentages they're uh, 120 and 122 games below 500 five division titles for the diamondbacks four for the rays One pennant for the Diamondbacks, two for the Rays, one championship, obviously, for the Diamondbacks, none for the Rays, six playoff appearances for the Diamondbacks, eight for the Rays. So I would not have guessed this just based on the fact that the Rays have been so good for so long lately, Yeah. right? But maybe I've forgotten just how bad the Devil Rays era was. Yeah, it was rough there for a stretch. Yeah, whereas the Diamondbacks came out of the gate pretty quickly and won a World yeah. Series a few seasons in, so they were respectable early on, whereas the Rays were truly terrible. But the narratives have changed, obviously, in in the past decade plus, because uh, the Rays have been so consistently good in a tough division, and the Diamondbacks have been up and down, one yeah. could say. But yeah, if you, you look over the full 25-year span, almost identical wow. records, which is surprising to me. Very yeah. interesting. Interesting. All right. Dodgers. So this is what I I teased here that this one was going to be horny. So Chris nominated the Dodgers graphic and homoerotic home run celebrations. (laughs) I'm I'm not sure if it was celebrations or 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 just one celebration it may it's have all been coming back to me now though that you say that i'm like oh yeah they were like quite you know yeah. they were a little cinemax at night <laughs> very much so so uh, there was one notable example 
And and this was uh, sometime in the middle of the season that the Dodgers, they had a, a home run celebration. I think this was Betts. I, I assume it was a home run celebration, but Mookie Betts was the player celebrating. And yes. he came back to the dugout and the entire team gathered around him and essentially jacked off. Yep. <laughs> this is basically what happened. Yep. Everyone like bent over. Yep. They made a jerking off motion. Yep. And one player in particular was holding, I suppose, a carbonated beverage. Yep. Or it looks like water, but I don't know. It Maybe it was carbonated water, but after the had jerking off, <laughs> it did. And, and it sprayed all over Mookie Betts' face. This was a, a facial <laughs> sort of situation here. And I don't know whether this was something they always did or did regularly or whether they had other celebrations like this or whether this was a one-off. But, wow, this yeah. was uh, – I somehow this has escaped my notice. <laughs> oh, it did not escape mine. And I was like, oh, oh um, okay, well, <laughs> yeah. it's a lot. And, yeah. <laughs> like, I want everyone to express themselves, but mm-hmm. I wonder, like – how you know it's like is that a thing you all planned or was it spontaneous that's a that's an interesting it's interesting in both directions right as a thing that you orchestrate and also a thing that you as a group spontaneously use as an expression of your excitement over a home run i'm not Mm -hmm. saying it's a bad thing i'm just saying it is a thing. It's an interesting yes. thing that, that yes. they did there. Yeah, yeah. Some people on Reddit dubbed it the Mukaki celebration. Oh, boy. Uh-huh. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh, no. So the Cardinals had their nice, innocent pepper grinding yeah, for, for grinding it out at bats. Yeah, and then uh-huh. the Dodgers uh, have a different kind of grinding entirely anyway. Ah, that's very good, Ben. That's very yeah. good. A very a different kind of grinding. I mean, I'm just saying to the Cardinals, like, don't be so boring. You can... <laughs> You know, like I'm not saying to be hornier than you feel, but Mm -hmm. I'm saying to be as horny as you feel. And I imagine that it is hornier than the pepper grinder celebration suggests. Is that's all I'm saying? Yes. Okay. I will link to the video for anyone who wants to check this out for themselves. (laughs) All right. For the Giants, a friend of the show, Mark Simon of SIS, he nominated Wilmer Flores leading MLB in the Fangraphs clutch stat, which uh, I had not known. He was, by that definition, the clutchest player in Major League Baseball this year. He had pretty extreme splits. He was uh, with runners in scoring position. He had a 940 OPS compared to a 596 OPS with no one on, which was uh, not historically extreme but quite extreme i did stat head to see how extreme it was and just for anyone who had at least as many plate appearances with runners in scoring position it was like 135 or something in his case i think it was only like 76th all time so not really that extreme the most extreme runners in scoring position split was leo cardenas for the 1966 reds and he that season had a 198 TOPS plus Mm. with runners in scoring position. I didn't even know that last year, Adam Duvall, who weirdly led the majors in in RBI or led the NL in RBI 
One reason why he did that was that he had a 185 TOPS plus with runners in scoring position. He had a 1124 OPS in those situations, and uh, that that clutchness got him up to 113 RBI, I think it was. So Wilmer Flores was quite clutch, not historically clutch, but very clutch. And he had a 71 WRC plus in low leverage situations, 128 in medium leverage, and 201 in high leverage. So if you had a high leverage plate appearance in 2022 on the Giants, you hoped that Wilmer Flores was up. And yeah. I will also just shout out Camilo Duval, who became something of a sensation late in the 2021 season. And he was not a one-year wonder. He had a good year. Yeah. And he was like neck and neck with Ryan Helsley for the fastest pitches thrown in baseball this year. So Helsley had the record at 104.2, but Duval was the only other player to hit 104. He had a 104.0 pitch, and interestingly, he had a much better second half of the season because he just developed a sinker like in July, just started throwing a sinker, and it became his primary pitch, and he was throwing the sinker way more than than any other pitch down the stretch, and he was really, really good down the stretch. So he kind of went away from the cutter and to some extent the slider, and he became just this hard sinker pitcher and was uh, really hard to hit late in the season. So I'm always interested in in people who pick up pitches in the middle of a season and just drastically change their pitch mix. And for him, it it worked out quite well. Yeah. It's impressive because like some guys, you can tell that the tinkering ends up being a a detriment. It exacerbates an already bad situation. And some guys were like, oh, I can figure this out kind of on the fly in a way that's pretty impressive. Yeah. Apparently at the the fan cave, you can buy a Lars Nupar autographed wooden pepper grinder for $149. Okay. (laughs) Looks like it's out of stock. So I guess it's been a popular popular. item. Maybe it was a big Christmas gift. But yeah, $149. That sounds pricey for a Lars Nupar autographed pepper grinder. I'm just going to say it's it's more than I would pay for that. Yeah, that seems like I get that there is a novelty associated with it and there is the the value of his signature, right, Mm -hmm. which is presumably worth something. Something. (laughs) But it does seem like kind of a lot when you think about it because like – you know, like if you if you were to say buy a pepper a pepper mill from Le Cousin, which is fancy, mm-hmm. forty six bucks. You know, huh. is the Newt Bar name? <laughs> is yeah, a hundred dollars worth. I don't know. Yeah, you can get a, a set. You can get a, a salt and pepper mill set for well ninety two dollars, but seventy five dollars on sale at this uh, exact moment, and. How is it that the wood one is the same price as the not wood one? Anyway, this has been Meg looking at Le Creuset. <laughs> All right. Next up, we have the Marlins. And this is uh, it's kind of an interesting one. This will be a little impromptu stat blast here in the middle of this other segment. They'll take a data set sort if I So the suggestion, again from listener Paul, the Marlins had only one player with enough plate appearances to qualify for the batting title. 
So you need, what, 3.1 plate appearances per game. That's 502 plate appearances over a full season. So the Marlins had only one player clear that bar. So did the Reds, Mm. for that matter, Kyle Farmer. Since 1998, there have been 18 teams now to have had only one player qualify for the batting title. But no one has failed to have a qualified player. So we've talked about qualifying from a pitcher perspective and how maybe they need to change the definition of qualifying for the ERA title because fewer and fewer pitchers are doing it every year. And we've talked about how some teams have almost had no one on the staff with 100 innings pitched even. We haven't really talked about this so much from the position player side. but it's not normally a problem. Yeah, but Paul is pointing out that we may be getting close to having a team that does not have a single batting title qualifier. And the only Marlin to qualify this year was Miguel Rojas, and he barely made it. He had 507 plate appearances. So that's like, you know, that's like one game basically over qualifying. Other Marlins got hurt. They released Jesus Aguilar in late August, and he went on to barely qualify as a member of the Orioles. But Rojas, the sole Marlin. And this is not a joke about the Marlins being bad at hitting, although they were. They still had some hitters who were qualified to be big leaguers, just not qualified for the batting title. And I looked at the other 17 teams that had had only one qualifier, and Rojas was easily the closest to not qualifying. So the Marlins came closer than any other team has come to not having a qualifier. And this put me in mind also of a listener email we got from Matthew last month who said, I wonder if 2023 might be the year, the first full year with a full 162-game schedule that we lose another cherished baseball tradition, the 700 plate appearance hitter. Glancing at totals over the years, it seems there is a general decline, something I'm sure Stathead could better confirm or deny, more scheduled rest for players, late game defensive substitutions, rest during blowouts, all seem ways to decrease total plate appearances, perhaps partially offset by the NLDH. It just seems to me another sign of the times to keep an eye on with one low offense year being all it takes to dip under the threshold because uh, that's another factor, obviously. The less offense there is, uh, the the lower the OBP is, the fewer plate appearances you're going to get per game. So I think we might actually be getting to that point. Like there were... 37.5 plate appearances in the average game in 2022 and 2021. And it's like, it's not like notably down really, but it's down by, you know, a plate appearance or two from higher offense eras. So that's part of it. And I think probably part of it is, as he said, you know, position player pitchers and and resting people in blowouts, just generally load management, right? Right. And, And giving guys days off because there have been studies that show that that does actually enhance performance. And I asked Ryan Nelson, frequent stat bus consultant, to take a look at this. Find him on Twitter at rsnelson23. And it is true. So we looked at both the number of qualified players per team per year, and we looked at the number of 700-plus PA players per team per year. And I will preface this by saying that you can find all of the seasons in the spreadsheet that I will link to on the show page, but for the purposes of this stat blast, I will just skip over and omit the shortened seasons, strike shortened or pandemic shortened, and I will acknowledge that the pandemic and the lockout and the compressed spring trainings may have exacerbated this trend toward less playing time for position players, but it does seem to be something that preceded the pandemic. So this season, there were five 700 plate appearance players. And leading the way was Marcus Semyon, 
who had 724 plate appearances for the second consecutive year. So he actually had the same number of plate appearances last year. He's like a real Iron Man because he's playing all the time and he's batting toward the top of the lineup. In 2019, he had 747 plate appearances. He didn't miss a game. He didn't miss a game in 2021 either, and he missed one game in 2022. So he's still the plate appearance Iron Man. Freddie Freeman, Trey Turner, Francisco Lindor, and Vlad Guerrero Jr. were the only other players to clear 700. In 2021, there were only two, maybe because of like a a post-pandemic hangover or something, but Semyon and Whit Merrifield were the only two to get over 700 plate appearances in 2021. So it is indeed true that this year, so Ryan did like a five-year moving average because this uh, spikes and decreases a lot from season to season, but 700 plus PA players per team, like we're we're down very low now. It's a, it's a, like 0.1 or 0.2 now. And even looking at it as a, a percentage of like qualifying players, it's it's very low. It's now the moving average is like under 4%. Mm. And that is uh, just about a record. Well, it's the record low since 1957, which was when you still had 154 game seasons. So we are at the the lowest number of 700 plus PA guys in the 162 game season era. And then as for the qualified players per team, that's now down under four on average. And that is the lowest, I believe, with the exception of 1946, which I assume was because that was the first year after World War II and probably players were returning from military service and Mm. displacing other players. So aside from that, we are now at the lowest number of qualified players per team, at least going back to like 1916 or so, like the dead ball era. And then we looked at it one more way, plate appearances per qualified player, just like the, the average number of PA per qualified player. And this year, that was down under 600. The last couple seasons, it was under 600 on average. And it's the first time that it's been this low since 1972, which was the last season before the DH. So lowest of the DH era. So I think it's a combination of rest and load management and also somewhat low offense, especially in 2022. And we are now down at, yeah, basically like the lowest rate of 700 plus PA players in the 162 game season era and also the lowest rate of of qualifying players with the exception of one weird outlier year that was related to World War II and also like fewest PA per qualified player since the DH came in. So I think it is true. We are heading toward a situation maybe where we have a team that does not have a single qualified hitter and maybe the 700 plus PA hitter goes extinct or offense could bounce back and and things will go in the other direction. But I think we're we're heading for that as of now. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hmm. All right. Interesting observation from Paul prompted by the Marlins of all teams. All right. We have the Mets here. So the Mets, one interesting thing. <laughs> we didn't talk about the Mets all this year. Like yes, not no. even a little bit. Finally, given the Mets some some airtime. Some airtime. <laughs> but one suggestion from George, and, and this was kind of your, your meet a major leaguer genre, but Nate Fisher, a former banker, 
He made his Major League debut for the Mets August 21st. A year ago, Nate Fisher was employed by the First National Bank of Omaha, determining whether to approve commercial loans. On Sunday at Citizens Bank Park in his Major League debut, he issued a denial to Philadelphia Phillies hitters. Haha, <laughs> good one. And he pitched three scoreless innings that day. He said it was surreal. He's so thankful and so blessed, and it's his dream. But he was 26 years old. He was undrafted out of the University of Nebraska. He pitched in 12 games in A-ball for the Mariners in 2019. And then COVID came, and so he went into banking in Omaha. Worked there until June of 2021. Then he re-signed with the Mariners, made it to AAA, and then he wound up with the Mets and uh, made his major league debut. And the quote in the story from Buck Showalter is, it's pretty cool. (laughs) (laughs) Great quote, Buck. (laughs) And Mark Canna said, his teammate, quote, I didn't even know who this guy was when he came into the game today. (laughs) <sighs> anyway, oh boy. Yeah. So someone asked him whether the tougher work environment was this or the bank. He said probably the Phillies lineup, but those days can get long at the bank too. So I missed that story. This is why we do meet a major leaguer and this yeah. is why we do this as well. And and that ended up being his only major league game of the season, wow. sadly. But it was it was a good one. It was a good debut. Yeah. And then the other Mets nomination from from Corey. So the Mets kind of dominated the league in replay challenge efficiency. And the Mets replay guy, Harrison Friedland, became a cult hero among the team and and the fan base for being so good at deciding when to challenge. So I was not aware, but the Mets, if I can find the correct tab here, they they had the highest percentage of of overturns, right? So the, the highest rate of their replay challenges that were successful, that were good challenges. So it was not only the highest rate this year, but it was the highest rate on record for any team that had as many challenges as they had. So the Mets went 26 for 33. Wow. So they had a 78% replay overturn rate, which is quite impressive. I think the next best team was down at 60%, the Cardinals, and I think the MLP average was just under 48%. So most challenges are not successful, but the Mets were 78% successful, and they challenged 33 times, which was on the low side, but but not extremely low. It wasn't like they were just so sparing in their challenges that they only did it when it was super obvious. They were, you know, something like uh, maybe bottom third, but but not extremely low. And so they had the highest success rate for a team with as many challenges in the post-2014 replay era. And their replay review guy, Harrison Friedland, became so known among Mets fans that Buck Showalter earlier this month went out of his way to announce that the Mets had re-signed replay guy Harrison Friedland. (laughs) (laughs) And I looked at his LinkedIn and Harrison Friedland, before he joined the Mets in the spring of 2021, he was a replay operator for Major League Baseball Oh, for like four years. So yeah, he's worked on that side of things. He's been a, a replay operator for the league 
And then they signed him. He he knows the system in and out. He knows the inner workings. And he has been able to put that to use to give the Mets a great replay overturn rate. So we'll see if he can keep it up this season or if it's a, a one-year wonder. But impressive performance by the Mets and Showalter and, and Friedland. We've gotten the question in the past a couple of times of like, where can teams spend money to try to like eke out marginal advantages and it's like mm-hmm. maybe one of the places is to like really overpay your replay guy mm-hmm. or it is, person yeah. like it doesn't have to be a guy right it is interesting like there's such a disparity like the the twins led the majors with 51 challenges and they had a 50 percent success rate the red sox had only 18 challenges and they had a 44 percent success wow. rate. so it wasn't like even they were picking their spots they just it depends on the manager. It depends on the replay operator. But the success rates range from 78% to 34%. That was the Rangers, although they were one of the more prolific challengers. So it really does vary quite a bit by team. All right. For the Nationals, there weren't a lot of great stories <laughs> to go around. <laughs> and so really the, the best suggestion we got was something about Sean Doolittle who uh, who doesn't love Sean Doolittle, but he was back with the Nationals, of course, and he didn't actually pitch much because he, he got hurt and he only yeah. got into six games. But off the field, he and his wife, Aaron Dolan, are advocates for many causes, yeah. and one of those causes is D.C. statehood. So yeah. they've gotten very into the D.C. statehood movement, which I don't think I was really aware of. And and so there's a Washington Post piece from August by Barry Sverluga about their D.C. statehood advocacy. And they were also, Sean and Aaron, they were named two of the, the 10 Washingtonians of the year by Washingtonian Magazine, which is not even a sports magazine. Very cool. And... They are just full-time D.C. people. Like, they love the city. They have bought a place there. Like, they live there year-round, even in the off-season. Even if he's not on the Nationals, I guess they live there, although I think that they resigned him, so he's going to be back on the Nationals. But they just love D.C., and they're advocating for statehood. And one thing that I learned that I, I didn't know from this article is that the slogan of D.C. That, that's on the license plates, which used to be taxation without representation. Yeah. That has changed to end taxation without representation. Good. Yeah, it's a good edit, I think, because if you didn't have end there, you might think like they're proud of it. Like, hell yeah, taxation without representation. But the end, I think, is is uh, pretty important. If you're against yeah. taxation without representation, yeah. then you you probably want to make that clear if you have room on the license plate. So, so that's good. And uh, they laid out uh, how important it is to have that representation and how historically it it hasn't been the case for many reasons. Obviously, like politically motivated, racially motivated reasons. But yeah. they are. Uh, Big advocates for getting DC representation. So yeah. I was not really aware of their work on on that particular issue. Yeah. You know, I don't want to begrudge ballplayers who like, you know, live in the city where they play during the season and then have a, a I was about to say an ancestral home, which sounds so much more <laughs> highfalutin than I think anyone probably thinks of it as. But like, you know, they have their home where they go during the off season. Like that's that's a fine arrangement. And I get why folks do it and like for a lot of these guys they don't get to pick where they live during the season anyway so i get it but it is it is always so cool when a player and his family like really make the place where they're playing home and and invest in the well-being of that community it's nice when that works out that way and yeah, yeah. like an incredibly important issue that impacts like 
one of our biggest and most important <laughs> cities and they just don't have yeah. adequate representation in Congress. It's freaking yeah. wild, man. So yeah, yeah, it's really cool that that has become a philanthropic and political priority for them. Very cool. All right. The Padres, the suggestions were about Joe Musgrove and his trip to Antarctica. So <laughs> Joe Musgrove made a trip to Antarctica after the season. And this was uh, partly for charity and, and partly just because I guess he thought it would be fun to go to Antarctica, which does seem like it would be fun. My mom went to Antarctica not long ago. I'd like to go to Antarctica sometime. I would uh, not want to have some horrible environmental impact, but it sounds right. like Joe Musgrove's trip to Antarctica was uh, about as environmentally friendly as it could possibly be and that that was a priority. And so he set the world record for fastball speed in Antarctica, which I don't know if that was uh, particularly competitive, but he wanted to throw at least 80 miles per hour. Ultimately, he got his way up to 86, which is not bad for a guy who topped out at 95 during the regular season. There's a video of him throwing the pitch and he's wearing boots. He's on flat ground. You have Antarctic temperatures, probably not a full warm up. So pretty impressive velo, though I guess he didn't have to hold anything back for the second and third time through the order. So that is the new record. It's not yet Guinness certified, although it has been (laughs) submitted. It's pending approval by the Guinness World Records book for the fastest pitch thrown in Antarctica. I really don't know what the previous record was, as the stories do not say. But one thing I didn't know, like uh, apparently in order to do this, I'm quoting from the MLB.com piece, it was a trip months upon months in the making. Musgrove and polar exploration guide Neil Drake spent five months simply applying for permits to throw a pitch on Antarctica, a process to ensure that nothing they did would damage the environment or local wildlife. Cool. Musgrove was required to submit numerous bits of information, including his average release point and his career stats. Wow. I don't know whether whether his ears were shiny when he threw this pitch or not, but I'm surprised. Like, I get getting a permit to to go there, but like specifically to throw a pitch there. I guess you you wouldn't want to like hit a penguin with a stray <laughs> pitch or like hit a polar bear or something. I don't know if that was a real risk, but uh, apparently everything was was cleared and on the level. And this was for fundraising as well for the Challenged Athletes Foundation. And he was uh, able to bring some people with physical challenges with him on the trip. He turned 30 when he was in Antarctica. And really, like the story buries the lead because it says that Sean Manaya, his teammate on the Padres last year, caught the pitch. So all the headlines are like Joe Musgrove goes to Antarctica, but Sean Manaya went to Antarctica too, and, and he caught this pitch, apparently. So that was kind of a, an interesting story. That's more interesting, I guess, than what most athletes do on their off seasons. He yeah. conceived this idea during an off day fishing trip, and I guess just decided, <laughs> why not go to Antarctica and throw a fast pitch there for charity? <laughs> so, yeah, and he right. really committed to the bit. Ben, if yeah. you ever do go to Antarctica, mm-hmm. you know you don't have to do the pod when you go. We yeah, that might we be will. Tough. Yeah, we will find some guest co-hosts, mm-hmm. and then you can tell us all about your adventure when you get back. I just, okay. you know, you're prone to not taking days off. Yes. I'm just saying, you can take those days off if the time ever comes. Right. Thank you. I you're don't know welcome. what the Wi-Fi situation is Probably, there. Probably. So, so yeah. I, I mean, I hope it's bad. I mean, I guess not for the sake of the, the researchers who work there, but right. it seems like yeah. if, if ever there's a time to be like, no, I, I'm busy, 
leave mm-hmm. me alone. It's when you go to literally Antarctica. Yes. And let me clarify before we get emails. Penguins are in Antarctica. Polar bears are not in Antarctica. Polar bears are on the other side. They're oh. in the Arctic. Yeah. Penguins. So yeah. only one of the two could have potentially been hit by that. It's pitch, good you said that because we definitely would have oh, gotten we definitely, emails. Absolutely yeah. would have gotten emails and, yeah. and we should have. Yep. <laughs> All right. And uh, and Musgrove also, he, he took Polaroids of the Padres season all year. He documented it via Polaroid and, cool. and took like uh, close to 200 Polaroid pictures and wants to turn that into a coffee table book with cool. proceeds also going to charity. Cool. So, yeah. A very philanthropic person, Joe Musgrove. So we cool. should celebrate that and yeah. not just mention the potential unproven sticky stuff. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. For the Phillies. So- the Phillies had a save in five of their 11 postseason wins. This was pointed out by listener Jeremy. Five different pitchers obtained those saves. Oh. And Jeremy asked if that was a fun fact. And I think that that is a fun fact because the Phillies are only the second team to have five players each record a save in the postseason. The only other was the 2020 Dodgers, who went all the way. Obviously, if you're going to do this, you probably had a pretty deep playoff run to right. give more pitchers chances to get saves. But the Dodgers, like they had a more of a designated closer. Like Kenley Jansen got multiple saves for that team, whereas for the Phillies, it was one save apiece. Right. So each of the five just had one save. Jose Alvarado, Sir Anthony Dominguez, Zach Eflin, David Robertson, and Ranger Suarez, each of them had five saves. So so they kind of had a like closer by committee sort of in a playoff run where they won the pennant. So, so that's kind of cool. Yeah. And uh, also Justin suggested that we should note that Andrew Painter tore up the minor leagues this year, the Phillies' top yes. prospect. He really was ridiculously good. Yeah. And I don't know that we we mentioned that, but he's very young. He's a very good painter is a great pitching name. Oh, yeah. Just like Lance Painter, although I think no relation. But Andrew Painter... He led the minor leagues minimum 100 innings pitched. He led the minors in strikeout minus walk rate, and I think it it wasn't all that close. He was, I think, second in strikeout rate behind Kyle Harrison of the Giants, but first in strikeout minus walk rate, 32.4. And yeah, he, he went from A to high A to double A in his age 19 season, and he was just uh, totally dominant. Like he he struck out thirty nine percent of the hitters wow. he faced, and walked only six percent, and had a one five six ERA and a two point oh two FIP. So he was just totally dominant. And I think Baseball Prospectus was the only place to rank him in the top one hundred coming into the season, and it was not high on the top one hundred. So he just he had a really fantastic swing and miss year. All right, the Pirates. Matt pointed out that after trading for G-Man Choi, the Pirates briefly had three Korean infielders with Choi and Ji-Hwan Bae and Hoi Park, who's now with Atlanta. They were all on the Pirates, and there's a, a Reddit thread where Korean fans are bemoaning the fact that now they'll have to watch Pirates games because, <laughs> like, in Korea, like, they tend to broadcast games with, with Korean players playing, and because the Pirates had three Korean infielders at that point, they were like, oh, man, we're going to have to watch Pirates games now. So that was the takeaway for them. And uh, also, Andrew pointed out that Jason Kendall, Pirates legend, 
was hired in a player development role for the Pirates. So that was a nice little homecoming for Pirates fans because uh, Kendall was the bright spot on a lot of terrible Pirates teams and a a great homegrown Pirates success story who, if he hadn't hurt himself, I I think really could have been a a Hall of Fame type player and was a very good player as it was. So he's back in the fold and perhaps helping to develop a new generation of productive Pirates. So that's nice. All right. The Reds are second to last team, and we will talk about them. So uh, a few things. Aaron suggested that we talk about the fact that the 62-100 and 100 Cincinnati Reds had a winning record against the AL East. Mm. Okay. Small sample, but impressive. I also wanted to point out, Joe Sheehan mentioned this in a recent newsletter, but Hunter Green, whom we certainly did discuss this yes, season. Yes, we did. But he had a really interesting arc to his season because- yes. He came up as this flame-throwing top prospect, and he got tattooed initially, Yeah, and his fastball was getting creamed, Yep, which was ironic because he threw it so hard, but yep. wasn't well-located or was straight or whatever. So then he moves away from the fastball and starts throwing his slider more, and, and that was good. That was effective. But then... His fastball got good, and so he kind of backed away from the slider a bit and started throwing the fastball more and was incredible. So after the All-Star break, and I didn't realize this because he missed some time with a a shoulder strain, and so he made only six starts after the All-Star break, but in those starts... 1.02 1.02 ERA, 1.7 FIP, 37% strikeout rate with a 51 to 8 strikeout to walk ratio. So he looked like the totally dominant ace level pitcher that everyone had hoped Hunter Green could be. So if that's a sign of things to come, then watch out. It could be a, a really interesting 2023 for him. But it's, it's cool because... Uh, I was struck by that story early on because you'd figure, oh, he's going to be great with his fastball because he throws it so hard. But then he kind of went in the direction that everyone in the league goes, which is like throwing fewer fastballs, even if you do have a good one. And it was just another example of the old adage about how uh, major league hitters can hit velocity if they know where it's going to be or they know it's coming. And he didn't have that much unpredictability. And once he started uh, mixing in the slider, he was good. But then once he started locating the fastball, he was also really good. So I'm looking forward to seeing what he does in 2023 because it could be quite exciting. Yeah. And also, and I can't believe I missed this story, but another meet a major leaguer genre for the Reds. So Chucky Robinson made his debut. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At what age do you stop going by by Chucky? Apparently not age 28 because zero Robinson, days old. Never yeah. go by Chucky. No, Chucky Robinson, who turned 28 this month. So he was 27 when he debuted and he's a, a third generation player his uh, father and grandfather had also been professional baseball playing chuck robinson's <laughs> he's from danville illinois so big chuck chuck senior played one season in the white Sox organization in the 60s and then little chuck played in the cubs system for a season in the 90s and here's the interesting thing they were all catchers chucky robinson is a catcher And he is black. He's African-American. So he's a black catcher. And we have talked about how few black catchers and African-American catchers there have been in Major League Baseball and the reasons for that. We did an interview and an episode about that. And I can't believe I I missed this somehow because Chuck Robinson, 
In August, when he debuted late that month, he became the first, I believe, African-American catcher since Bruce Maxwell from 2016 to 18. And then there was Russell Martin, who was Canadian, who last played in 2019. And then there had been a drought, and then Chuck Robinson came along. And he only got into 25 games and 60 plate appearances, and he did not hit at all at the major league level. But he got there, and it was a big story for for Big Chuck and Little Chuck, and I guess <laughs> Littlest Chuck or Chucky, uh, and in a uh, <laughs> just Chucky Chucky Robinson. Uh, it's, it does so sound cute. like a name from a different era of baseball. Yeah, 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 or from like Little League, yeah, <laughs> or Sandlot or something. Something. But yeah, twenty first round draft pick by the Astros in twenty sixteen. As a four-year-old, he he went to to Big Chuck. His grandfather told him he wanted to be a baseball player when he grew up, and and Big Chuck and Little Chuck were both there and around to to see him make his debut. So that was just a wonderful story for multiple levels. And I I blame everyone for not alerting me to this fact. Really. <laughs> <laughs> because you all know we, we don't talk about the Reds, so you have to inform right, us. Right, you have to tell us stuff about the Reds, yeah. you know. If something cause... newsworthy happens with the Reds, you got to let us know. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. All right. And lastly, we get to the Colorado Rockies. Mm. And <laughs> we really didn't get any <laughs> suggestions Aww. for the Rockies. I was like, anyone? Rockies? Good, good Rockies stories? And there just wasn't much out there. So fortunately... I saw a story that was uh, very well-timed published this week by MLB.com that supplied me with a, a fun little Rockies entry here. So this was published on Boxing Day by Sam Dykstra, and it was these five minor league systems improved most in 2022. So this was going by the preseason and end-of-season MLB pipeline organizational rankings, which probably mirror other systems, other sites and and outlets. But the Rockies were number one on this list because their preseason rank, according to Pipeline, was 24th, Mm. and their re-rank at the end of the season was 9th. And so they made the biggest climb. And the blurb mentioned that at the beginning of the season, they had only one top 100 prospect, Zach Veen, whom we have discussed, he is still at the top of the Rockies list, but now they have Ezekiel Tovar and Ariel Amador and Drew Romo. And Tovar had a, a big season. He was known as a defensive shortstop, and then he hit better at Double yeah. A, and and he actually made the majors uh, toward the end of the season, yes. which we may have mentioned. And then they drafted Gonzaga right-hander Gabriel Hughes tenth overall in the draft, and so that gave them a a good high ceiling pitcher to go with uh, the other guys. So so the Rockies now, at least according to Pipeline, have a top ten system after being almost a bottom five system to start the year. So. That's good. <laughs> Congrats, Rockies. That's a nice positive story. And uh, the other teams that had the biggest improvements, the Reds were second, the Guardians and the Cubs and the Nationals. Mm. So other than the Guardians, pretty uncompetitive teams, which is what you would expect, I guess, that those would be the teams making farm system gains. So the Guardians, I mean, even more encouraging, right, that they had such a young team and then also an improving farm system and they won the division just, but we'll get to that in in the AL edition of this, but something to feel good about on the farm, at least for Rockies fans. 
I maintain that the most exciting thing was Wynton Bernard making the majors in mm, 2022, yes. but I've already made my case for that in a major, yeah, major league. about it. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what are you going to do? All right. Well, that concludes that exercise, or at least the NL edition, and we will wrap up with the AL teams later in the week. And I'll just give you the pass blast. This is episode 1947 big year in baseball history mm. and this past blast comes from jacob pomranke sabers director of editorial content and chair of the black Sox scandal research committee and he writes 1947 and then there were two for nearly two years after the dodgers signed jackie robinson in 1945 brooklyn was the only al or nl team that seemed to show much interest in signing black players before robinson made his historic debut in 1947 the Dodgers also went out and signed future Hall of Famer Roy Campanella and star pitcher Don Newcomb, along with several other Negro Leagues veterans, but no other teams followed Branch Rickey's lead. The Dodgers also might have added a third Hall of Famer to their roster in Larry Doby, who instead became the first black player in American League history when he made his debut with Cleveland on July 5th, 1947. One week later, on July 12th, 1947, Wendell Smith of the Pittsburgh Courier wrote about how close the Dodgers came to signing Doby. Quote, if Cleveland had waited a little longer, they would have missed getting Larry Dobry's signature on a contract. At the time, Cleveland grabbed the hard-hitting second baseman of the Newark Eagles. The Brooklyn Dodgers were trailing him night and day. Although Doby did not know it himself, the Dodgers had a scout eyeing him in every game he had played for the past three weeks. It could be that Cleveland knew the Dodgers were hounding the Negro second baseman and stole a march on them by snatching him from right under Branch Rickey's nose. <laughs> The Dodgers planned to sign Dobie and send him to Montreal. On the Dodgers' last trip to Chicago, Ricky dispatched a wire to his Brooklyn office and ordered his scouts to, quote, get back on Dobie's trail and also to start negotiating with Mr. and Mrs. Abe Manley, owners of the Newark team for his contract. Bill Veck, the liberal and personable owner of Cleveland, has been interested in a Negro player ever since he purchased the club. He first heard of Dobie last winter when Bill Nunn, managing editor of the Pittsburgh Courier, went to Cleveland and discussed the entire idea with him. At the time, Veck assured Nunn that he wouldn't hesitate to sign a Negro player if he were good enough to make the grade. Nunn sang the praises of Dobie and urged Veck to look the kid over real good. And, of course, he did and signed Dobie, and Dobie went on to his own great Hall of Fame career, although he struggled initially. And uh, there was an incident with uh, former Effectively Wild guest, the late Eddie Robinson, who Mm. was initially upset that he had lost his job to Dobie and felt he had been told something different and guaranteed job security. But eventually, Dobie uh, became a regular and solidified his spot on the roster the following season and, and went on to a great career. Jacob concludes, Dobie didn't see much playing time in 1947, but he switched to center field and emerged as a star in 48, helping Cleveland win its most recent World Series championship. He played 13 more seasons and was elected to the Hall in 1998. Meanwhile, the St. Louis Browns became the third AL or NL team to field black players in 1947 when they signed Hank Thompson and future Hall of Famer Willard Brown from the Kansas City Monarchs in mid-July, although that didn't go quite as well because they hadn't really laid the groundwork for that the way that that the Dodgers and and other teams did. Anyway, the Dodgers uh, could have had Campanella, Robinson, and Dobie, but wow. I guess it's for the best that uh, those players were spread around a little bit more and that other teams got in on the action, yeah. however belatedly. Yep. All right, update on the Lars Newt Bar pepper grinder. 
This product at fancave.com is actually listed $169, but it is currently on sale for $99.99, and there are only four left. So act now if you just have to have the Lars Newtbar St. Louis Cardinals autographed red pepper grinder 8 inches with inscription. The same website has an autographed framed photo of Lars Newtbar with a grind that pepper inscription for $169. Really, if you're so into the Lars Nupar pepper thing, why would you spend the same amount of money to get a photo with that inscription instead of that inscription on an actual pepper grinder? That seems like a much better buy in the realm of this questionable buy. Or if you want the discount options, you could get an unframed photo with the Grind That Pepper inscription for a mere $79. Or a signed baseball, again, Grind That Pepper, quite a catchphrase, $89. The same website is actually selling a Lars Newtbar autographed baseball without the inscription for $69. Nice, but the Grind That Pepper inscription is evidently worth $20 just by itself fascinating. You could also save all the money that you could spend on a large loot bar grind that pepper related item and spend it on Effectively Wild instead. You can become a Patreon supporter and support the show by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild. The following five listeners have already signed up to help us keep doing the podcast and help us stay ad free and get themselves access to some perks. Lucas Campo, Sean Porter, Mark Martella, Robert Amon Steimel, and Trevor Nunez. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group for patrons, as well as access to monthly bonus episodes and playoff live streams, plus discounts on merch and ad-free Fangraphs memberships and more. You can contact me and Meg via email at podcastfangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance. We will be back with another episode soon. Talk to you then. Bye.